Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly the views or opinions of the presenter. Nothing in here is the view of the firms, corporations, financial entities that anybody represents. Uh, Nothing expressed here is a view of any um, regulator or semi-regulatory agency. Uh, All content is intended to be educational. Nothing in this episode construes specific investment advice. And if you do require advice, you should seek an appropriate advisor, be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. A typical employer plan sponsor that doesn't really understand what current plan they have, what's available in the marketplace, what are other employers doing, what should I be doing? These are all just questions that benchmarking can help answer. And arming the advisor with those answers really just uh, elevates their ability uh, to advise those clients. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hey, it's Jason Watt here. Welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with uh, Matt Lister and Alex Smulders from Cloud Advisors. This is another uh, group benefits focused session, therefore, Alberta Accident Sickness Credit, um, however, not a CGIB Navigator episode. So you'll be able to get life insurance credits in all jurisdictions except Alberta. No life insurance credits here, but one accident and sickness credit. It'd be good for a financial planning credit from FP Canada, a professional development credit from IROC, and an insurance credit from um, MFDA. And uh, it's we're about an hour of content here, so I'll roll right to the object. Uh, the object is this orange backpack. Um, I'm super proud of this backpack because it's tiny, and I did an entire three days of travel out of that backpack uh, recently. So there you go. Uh, let's roll into the interview. Thanks, everybody. I'm here today with Alex Mulders and Matt Lister um, from Cloud Advisors. They're going to talk in a moment here about what Cloud Advisors is. And we have a special guest here, too, my granddaughter, Freya, who's home with us sick today. So, um, Matt, do you mind starting off with a quick intro as to who you are? And we'll talk about Cloud Advisors in a moment. Yeah, certainly, Jason. Uh, thanks for having uh, having us. Um, so my name is Matt Lister. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cloud Advisors. Uh, we're Canada's employee benefits marketplace, and I'll talk a little bit more about what all that means. Uh, been in the industry for uh, about 10 years. Uh, started as an employee benefits advisor uh, in BC, working with small and medium-sized companies, and, uh, and then transitioning full-time into the, the software and technology we're in today. Okay, perfect. And Alex? Thanks for having us today. Um, I'm Alex, uh, Alex Mulders. I joined Cloud Advisors about a year ago um, and uh, really helping us kind of take off with the the employer side of the business. Um, fresh graduate, but uh, stepped right into this kind of new tech, tech, tech role and uh, yeah, here today and really excited. So thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Alex. And I think, Matt, you're going to give us a little rundown on what Cloud Advisors is and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So Cloud Advisors, as you heard me just say, uh, Canada's employee benefits marketplace. Um, But what that really means is uh, not only do we have hundreds of available products and services um, that are available to Canadian employers through through group advisors, um, but what we offer is a complete automated plan evaluation, uh, something that we call smart quote. And really what it is, is um, an opportunity for any employer to get a free evaluation of how their plan stacks up. Uh, looking at how competitive it is, maybe in their industry, in their province or the group size, but then connecting them with uh, insights on how they can improve their plan, addressing things like gaps and, and risks, uh, but as well as opportunities in the marketplace. And big, big part of that is obviously matching them to uh, available solutions that they can consider, making sure that they've got quotes and, and, and uh, data to support that, and ultimately everything that they need to, uh, to put in the best plan for their people. 
And you said you started off as an advisor yourself, Matt. So this is the sort of classic story. You started out this way. You looked for, I assume you went looking for some, I'm going to say benchmarking here. You found the market a little bit lacking. Like there used to be the Toronto, was a board of trade benchmarking yeah. report, which was reasonable, but there's not really much. I mean, some of the providers have proprietary stuff. Is that kind of what happened here, Matt? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're pretty close to the, uh, to the origin story. Uh, if you want to call it that, um, you know, first couple of years in the industry, really just, you know, once you get licensed, you know, start to build your network. Um, I was pursuing my seeds uh, at the time and, and completed that early in my career. Um, and it was really around understanding, like, what would the, you know, future of the industry look like for me at, at the time, I was in my late 20s, uh, starting out into the industry and realizing I got a pretty long runway. Uh, although ironically, I'm not an advisor anymore. Um, and, you know, what would it look like to be an advisor in 10 years? You know, what would the types of tools that we'd be using and how could I sort of look for those things uh, today? And obviously, as you kind of alluded to, no one was really building anything specific for uh, the group benefit space. And uh, it's a fairly new niche industry. Um, and so, you know, we thought about, you know, what are the problems? How can we uh, maybe perhaps build some of those things ourselves? And in talking with advisors uh, that I was meeting in, in the early, in the first year or two of the, of the business, this concept of benchmarking came up. You know, benchmarking is something that's been used by some of the largest consultants, um, and, and there are some proprietary tools out there, uh, but it wasn't something that was readily uh, like on demand or available to uh, the typical advisor or broker uh, when they needed it. So it was that was our original offering was how do we get benchmarking in the hands of advisors and employers when they need it. Perfect. And I think there's maybe two different answers to this question, but can you talk us through who your ideal client would be? So, Matt, do you want to start us off here? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a three sided marketplace, right? So we've we're working with all elements of the supply chain. So we've got obviously our provider partners that are contributing, you know, products and services and rates and quotes and everything into the marketplace itself. Um, and then all of our services delivered 100 through our advisor partners. So large or small, um, we license our technology through. Uh, an advisor, either you know, a, a local regional uh, advisory firm that specializes in benefits, or a large uh, consolidator, a national advisory firm um, that then delivers the technology to uh, employers. And uh, that's what you know. You heard Alex talk about it at the beginning. It's a real focus for us in the last year, try and get our messaging out in front of employers. So, you know, the ideal client, obviously, it, from the provider side, is pretty simple. If you offer an eligible group solution, we want you in the marketplace. From the advisor side of things, you know the the ideal client is really uh, someone who specializes in uh, group benefits, and that's something that I'm really passionate about. Is and I think you mentioned as well, like there's ninety thousand plus licensed advisors, but there's a much smaller set that actually specializes in group, and I think that's very very important. So we focus on the group specialists, um, and then on the employer side of things, you know we work with uh, through our advisor partners, employers large and small. Um, they all have different needs at different times, depending on the industry, uh, province, and and size uh, that they are. But one pattern that we've identified is um, those that are keenly uh, involved in either high turnover or are actively recruiting and trying to retain talent. Uh, that obviously puts pressure on the benefits plan, puts pressure on you know how competitive it is, and 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 raises a lot of interest for our service. So, you know, Alex, if you want to field this question or not, maybe Matt, that whomever, but. Um, in the sense of that employer, then so you've got the employer who, I assume they they would have some pain around their benefits, and they this would send them to Google. Is that kind of what happens here, or is there something else? You know, there is a volume of you know employers that would reach out to to Google. Um, oftentimes, we hear they reach out to peers. Uh, they're talking to other you know HR professionals. They're working with HR consultants or recruiters. Um, or other you know, benefits professionals they've worked with in the past. Um, obviously, we'd hope and our advisor customers would hope they'd reach out to them um, when they've got those, uh, those problems or those concerns. Um, you know, year after year, Benefits Canada does the survey. They identify you know, what are the main drivers behind employee benefits. And there's a lot of things that we can talk about, priorities in, in, in having a benefits plan. But the number one thing that keeps coming back is, is to be competitive. And the reality is that a lot of employers simply don't know how their plan stacks up. And so that's why benchmarking has become such an important place to start. Um, oh, sorry, Alex, anything to throw in there? 
Yeah, I just wanted to add, you know, quickly as well. I think, uh, you know, a lot of small time employers as well are, um, you know, quite quite interested in benefits. Obviously, the the market has become incredibly competitive um, to retain, you know, top talent in this country, um, and and so a lot of employers. Uh, are looking to even just include a benefits plan for the first time. Um, but but to Matt's point, you know, a lot of our original um, <clears throat> original clients or employers are coming through, you know, word of mouth or um, consultants, um, but it, it's mostly a very, you know, kind of tight-knit industry. So a lot of it's not necessarily coming through Google. Uh, we'd love it to, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'd love to grow kind of our, you know, our brand awareness a little bit there and, and have people search us up. But um, a lot of it is through, you know, word of mouth and, and people are hearing what we're doing and, and really valuing, you know, the, the what we can offer them. Um, yeah. So do you find like our benefits advisors sending their clients to use your service directly or is it more like um, kind of once the advisor has that client, they, they take care of everything? Yeah, so through our advisor partners from day one, we've sort of built the database um, by offering the service through their clients and prospects. So uh, we would engage a, a particular advisory firm. Uh, they may look after, say, 150 uh, clients. And through the course of that first year with us, or maybe right uh, right out of the gates, um, they're onboarding and analyzing each one of their clients throughout their, their renewal cycles. And then ad hoc as they're prospecting new business and they get opportunities to advise other other employers um, they're adding that into the mix as well. So uh, predominantly, we've grown through our advisor partners. Um, but one of the things that we've seen in the last year with our brand presence and our uh, uh, our website and our, our digital marketing efforts and, and all the work that Alex and her team are doing is um, we've seen employers coming directly to cloud advisors. And so we now have the opportunity uh, through our website to actually connect those employers with that free evaluation and an advisor partner at the same time. So that's a real seamless process that happens where an employer who's interested in getting that benchmarking, they can sign up through our, our site. They get they can either invite their existing advisor, get connected with one of the advisors in our uh, platform and get that evaluation all uh, electronically. And that's one of the things that they love. So we're now kind of playing both sides of that, uh, of that uh, relationship. So can we talk a little bit about maybe some more of the specifics of benchmarking here? Like, and we can talk about group or just in general. So first off, and I know Alex, you talked about sort of attract and retain that top talent. Um, would you see there being additional benefits for the plan sponsor of having some benchmarking done? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mentioned, um, you know, I think what we see uh, is the number one reason why employers have benefits in the first place and certainly why they maintain them outside of a collective bargaining agreement um, is to be is to be competitive, right? And um, one of the other patterns that we've identified is, uh, and others have identified as well, is that the majority of plans, especially in the small and medium-sized business sector that represents the majority of employers, um, are many years outdated. Um, so it's very common to you know, put a plan in place that met the budget needs at the time and continue to renew it year on year, but not realizing that it wasn't keeping up with the times, changes weren't being proactively made, um, and, and sort of what you end up with is some, some stagnant or outdated coverage, right? And employers just didn't, you know, have maybe the budget to engage a, a consultant on a, you know, thousands of dollars to, uh, to, to get a robust benchmarking of their plan done, wasn't feasible, so they simply kind of just moved forward um, as is. And so the benefits for the for the plan sponsor is if they're relying on that plan to uh, perform certain objectives, like um, you know be a competitive offering when they're hiring new employees, to be a competitive offering when employers are looking to or employees, pardon me, are looking to see if the grass is greener on the other side, um, to look to how their employer is uh, taking care of them, taking care of their families, and, and things that they rely on, um, that they just simply didn't have the context. And so you know I think a single starting places context uh, to show that employer, like what is the current state of the benefits plan? You know, 80% of employers have a benefits plan to begin with, but you know, how up to date is it? Um, where, where do we sit? And, and then where do we need to position it in the marketplace? So in that sense, you know, if I, th that's a good answer. And if I'm thinking Matt, about benchmarking here, am I benchmarking against like, you know, a thousand employers, kind of my size in my geographic region, or can I be a little more granular? Can I see, you know, employers that have 
implemented a benefits plan or changed their benefits plan in the last year or two? Like how how specific can I get with that? Yeah, yeah. And I know you want to get into the nuts and bolts of benchmarking. So I'll, I'll give you a, a longer answer here because I think yeah. your audience might uh, appreciate um, because we see benchmarking at different stages, as you alluded to. So, um, and Alex mentioned, obviously, there's some portion of employers that don't have a benefits plan. So benchmarking for them is like understanding, you know, what is a typical plan and actually starting to uh, quantify a standard plan or traditional benefits. Like, what does that actually look like? Um, In terms of what is meaningful for the comparison, that's going to differ by employer to employer, right? So certainly some, uh, you know, are very um, sensitive to their industry. Uh, Others are much more sensitive to the province, especially, you know, benchmarking within the province of Quebec, um, or benchmarking Western Canada versus Atlantic Canada, we see some stark differences, pharmacare provinces versus non-pharmacare. Um, group size is an interesting one because um, every employer seems to look at it a little bit differently. And what I, you know, what we see commonly is, well, let's do a national benchmark. Okay, that's not quite relevant. Let's do a provincial benchmark. But now with, you know, post-COVID era and hybrid work opportunities, the geography is all uh, fragmented. So, you know, you could have employees in, in any province or other parts of the world. So, you know, maybe geography isn't the most important thing. And so maybe group size. What I try and tell our advisor partners and, and what we see from employers is look to where you're hiring from and where your people might be exiting to, because that's going to give you an indication of, you know, where you need to be competitive. Maybe you're a large uh, employer that's hiring from a, a number of small businesses in your area. Maybe it's the inverse and you offer other things, right? So, you know, the industry region and group size combination that's right for you is really going to be specific to each employer and who they need to compete against, um, at what level they are willing to or can afford to compete. Um, and then, you know, making sure that they're competitive with where employers or their employees might be looking to leave to uh, and saying, oh, no, no, we offer that too. We offer that too. We know that, you know, the, the guys across the street offer that, but we have that as well, right? I like the context answer here, Matt. I think that's a that's a, a great great way to look at it. So just keeping down this context path, um, and I, I don't know if this is a software question or a philosophical question. Your answer will help me out here. But you know, I, I might have like so plan A or the plan I currently have in place. You know, I've got a, a really solid health and dental offering, but the employees pay half the cost, and then sort of plan B is a more mediocre health and dental offering, but the employees don't pay any of the cost. So how does that kind of thing show up in benchmarking? Is that, does the question make sense? Yeah. And actually what you're touching on, um, I've got a, a more recent way that we answer that question, but it really reminds me of day one, because that was one of the first problems we identified when we started this benchmarking journey is, like how do you how do you build a database that incorporates ninety nine point nine percent of the plan designs that are out there and and the variations that you just alluded to? Like one of the things that's unique about Canada is you know compared to you know some of the uh, other countries that we've looked at for benchmarking is you can customize your plan like right down to three employees. So what that creates is like there is very few true apples to apples comparisons. You've got a, you know, a, a little bit of variation or a lot of variation in virtually every plan, provider to provider, at the time it was set up, what, it, what advisors set it up, what strategies they employed. So when we built the database, it had to incorporate all of these different aspects of multiple providers that could be in the picture, uh, multiple divisions of coverage, uh, multiple uh, classes of coverage. Um, and then on top of that, you know, who's paying the premium? And I heard you, you know, mention that comparison is like, there's, there's different ways to offer what might be perceived as the same thing. But at the end of the day, it's one thing to offer benefits, it's another thing to pay for benefits. So, you know, the foundation of what we do is we've got multiple reports, uh, our comprehensive reports, 14 pages, it's 200 variables of a plan design, and we independently report on each one. So what that does is it gives the advisor or the consultant the ammunition that they need for just about any question that could come up from the employer. But what we're doing today is we're summarizing all those reports into what we call our bar score. And the bar score stands for benefits, attraction, retention, and it's like a credit score, but for benefits. And by summarizing all of this available benchmark, you know, you're, you, you include this, you don't include this, you're high here, you're low there, um, this isn't applicable to you. 
And then on top of that, we layer in uh, premium splitting. We layer in um, uh, waiting for what percentage of the benefit you're paying versus having the employee pay because it's the confluence of all these variables that ultimately answers the question, how does your plan stack up? Bar score is interesting to me. So I see some super analytical questions from like, it's very common. You get a bunch of group benefits advisors who look at their renewals and they say, insurer sent me a 12.8% renewal, but my math says it should only be 11.3%. Like it very, I'm sure you hear this kind of thing, right? Yeah, so oh yeah. you find that that, um, going to say appropriately analytical, like I don't want to, um, you know, that advisor, do you find that they look at that bar score and they're like, you know, Matt, what's going on? Like, you know, that kind of thing. Is this a, is this a back and forth with some of your uh, advisor clients? Yeah. And you know what? We benefited from that. Um, yeah, certainly some more than others are, you know, Hey, can you open up the hood and show me how this thing works? And, you know, what, what we've done is this, especially our, our longstanding advisor partners is, We've worked with them through the early versions of that, and the early versions didn't have premium splitting considerations, and the early versions had different weighting for different benefits, and, and we've continued to evolve uh, that bar score based on the feedback from consultants that are working with employers that are you know, in the thousands of employees to consultants that are working in the union environment or working with small mom and pop shops. Like The bar score has to be able, if it's going to be this truly universal ranking system it has to be able to look at you know what are the the, the best employers or the, the largest employers in the country doing and you know how do they differentiate between the 98th and the 99th percentile but also how does a, a standalone hsa differentiate from a really basic traditional benefits plan compared to you know something that's a little bit more robust and so we've had to make different fine-tuning adjustments along the way and bring in more and more data to try and nuance it uh, more and more um, and add in uh, new considerations. But ultimately, you know, this whole industry uh, really exists to serve the employer and the employees. So our true litmus test is when the advisor takes it to an employer and has an amazing conversation with them, the eyes light up. Whoa, I thought we had a better plan than this. What's going on? Um, you know, I thought we had a pretty basic plan. This is showing that it's a pretty weak plan or, you know, I thought we'd be, you know, we needed to be up here and it's down there. And, and the, those are the moments where it's like, oh, the bar score is doing its job because it's created the urgency now for that advisor to engage the employer in how they can improve their plan. Right. And, and it leads into the rest of the evaluation. So it's something that I know shows up a lot for individual advisors, but I think has some relevance for group benefits advisors is this idea that, you know, a group, whatever, a client, somebody who's paying premiums knows that they they would be better off if they did step X, X Y, and Z. But then what actually, like, does this actually kick them in the butt? Does it get them to take action where they maybe otherwise wouldn't? Yeah, that's absolutely what we're seeing. Um, you know, competition is the number one driver, but c the competition is also what creates that urgency to take action. Because the reason you have a plan that's 10 years outdated is not necessarily because the advisor didn't provide any recommendations or suggestions, but uh, they weren't taken up, right? And it was sort of pushed off to next year. And so when you find out that that bar score creates the urgency to all of a sudden say, oh, uh, I see what XYZ and other employers are doing. Uh, you know, I've missed the boat on this. We need to take up and, and, and make that change, right? Um, and so we've even seen situations where the bar score has been used to communicate to employees um, on both sides of the equation. So employers that are doing a, a good job have been very proactive with their advisor, with their providers, and have a really strong plan saying, hey, look, see, we have a very strong plan. I told you so. Uh, not quite in that exact way, you know, but we have heard stories of the bar score being presented in lunchrooms um, and saying, you know, our benefit plan ranks this. And we're looking at ways to improve it all the time. Um, and it shows the employees that they're aware, they're paying attention, and they are seeking uh, a ways to improve the plan. And conversely, if they've got a negative score, you know, they might maybe want to adjust that behind closed doors before they get out there and, and talk about how they're positioned, right? So it starts with awareness, because if you don't know how you sit, you don't know whether or not you need to make a change. And then the system will show you, you know, what are some of the insights and, and ideas on how to actually improve the score? 
And, and that's when it gets tactical then with the advisor on, okay, what are we going to do with this newfound awareness? Another one of these areas, Matt, where you get some um, comparison between plans where the apples to oranges thing shows up, I think, is different classes of employees. So, or, you know, management class and staff or whatever the case is. So how do you manage that kind of comparison? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And I was, uh, so we were thinking about that when we were creating the original uh, database and, and the hierarchy of what does a benefit plan actually look like? Because, you know, you've got all these different plan design variations that are available from different providers. You have multiple providers, uh, you have multiple divisions where you have maybe have different class for, uh, or pardon me, a different level of benefits for one province or one business unit or what have you. And then you've got this class structure of benefits. And it's very, very common, um, you know, even below the level of a flex plan to have a different level of benefits for executives or certainly for retirees or full-time or part-time. So we developed a class type system to be able to intake all these and, and understand these different levels of benefits. Uh, and now we see benefit plan designs with hundreds of divisions and class type um, and, uh, and, and a huge amount of variation. But, you know, even on those small plans where you've got uh, a regular employee class and you've got an executive uh, level benefits, um, what we do is we record those essentially as two plans belong to the same group. And so when we report on that, uh, it allows us the ability to report as one group, summarizing all of the various classes that they have or actually isolate and pick uh, independent classes. And that that in Intel is used in the bar score as well, because it's not necessarily appropriate to, you know, weight the executive class benefits and say, well, this is what this group has overall for benefits. You know, it's kind of like, you know, what is Amazon doing for their warehouse versus what is Amazon doing for their leadership? Like these are not going to be the same thing. So it's very important that you either exclude or, or weight them differently. But when it comes to a benchmarking report, uh, our advisor partners can select uh, any combination. So they can look at uh, just a certain set of what we call benefit summaries, a, a unique provider division and class combination. Perfect. So I have maybe one last benchmarking question, although I'm, I, I'm sure I missed something here. So I assume this is like a two-way street with data, right? You're, you're sort of feeding data in from your clients and then getting you know, that shows up in the benchmark then. And of course, this is such a a big deal today, right? Is how do people manage that data when it comes from clients? Like, mm -hmm. you want to get into like a Facebook type of situation, right? So, um, right. so how, do you, how do you think about that trade-off between needing that data and being responsible with it? Yeah, that's great. Another good question. And again, I, I kind of go back to day one, uh, like first principles of starting the company. Um, you know, we, we started slow and, and we built slow um, to do things right. You know, we really focused on with our engineers um, that, you know, security um, and scalability would, co would come first and, and, and second and then performance third. Um, so while everyone was excited to, you know, rush out and just start ripping off benchmarking reports, like really, really well structure the uh, the database and, and the process to um, protect that confidential client information. Um, so, you know, when we started, uh, obviously you can't benchmark against nothing. So, you know, we had an, a few initial advisory firms that submitted, you know, a few hundred groups and, and we kind of got things going. And then as we licensed the software to more and more advisory firms, we'd, we'd build that block of business and we'd go back to those advisory firms on the, the year two when they're doing the renewal. and see if there was any changes and either add, update, or remove them from the, from the database. And so it was sort of snowballed from there. Um, every client that came into the system is anonymized and in aggregate forms that, that benchmarking service. We didn't, however, use prospect data, which is a question we get sometimes. Um, just because the nature of a prospect coming across is they have, would have a pretty high probability that their plan design would change. And that advisor may or may not win the business, so they may or may not have the relationship to be able to say, yeah, they, they stayed with that plan or no, they moved to this plan. So while we've, while we've got about 15,000 uh, client uh, data uh, points that we use in the database today, we've looked at upwards of 100,000 uh, groups over the last seven years, um, uh, sometimes multiple you know, years, year on year. So... Um, the database is really a living and breathing, um, you know, live ongoing survey, if you will. Um, and it's been really important. We've never compelled any of our advisors to submit 100% of their data. 
um, but rather you know, rely on the value proposition of benchmarking and the evaluation and now the marketplace to be able to compel them to want to submit more and, and help us grow. And um, through the addition of some you know, very large customers, we grew quite quickly and we were able to, uh, you know, to offer this benchmarking in some really niche areas now. Um, we saw our average group size, um, just because I know, you know, everyone loves some numbers. We saw our average group size grow from about 35, 45 employees in the first few years to over 100 employees uh, on average. Um, as we started to work with, you know, employers that are over 1,000 employees, um, you know, in very specific industries, filling out uh, multiple provinces. So, we, you know, more and more, there's, there's, there's less and less benchmarks that we can't do. Right. But in the beginning, you know, they'd ask you for a very, very niche benchmark. Maybe it was a pretty small comparison. And now it's a it's a pretty robust comparison. What else should I know about benchmarking here? This is a, it's a fascinating topic and it's not like you're you're, I think, unique in a Canadian marketplace with what you're doing. So what else should I ask here? Yeah, I mean, benchmarking is a really interesting topic. Um, you know, I've always been of the mindset that we shouldn't. Um, strive for it to be a very academic exercise, although it can be, you know, you can involve the statisticians and, and really get into a, a number of ways to present the data and, and how do you manage, um, you know, uh, different aspects of the data integrity. We've always tried to, you know, increase the quality and the accuracy, the consistency, the completeness of the data to make sure that we're offering the best possible service, but we tried to present it in an actionable way. So what I've seen in the past is a lot of benchmarking surveys or other things that are presented in maybe not quite an academic way, but like a like an industry insight way. Like, you know, hey, here's what's going on in the industry and isn't that interesting? And maybe we can draw some conclusions from this. What we tried to do was make the benchmarking, um, and I believe we succeeded with this, is making the benchmarking A, like on demand. So instantly available to it, during a meeting, before, during and after a meeting. Um, but actionable, highly actionable, because ultimately what benchmarking is, is, we talked about context, but it's answering questions, right? And when you think about like a, a typical employer plan sponsor that doesn't really understand you know, what current plan they have, what's available in the marketplace, what are other employers doing, what should I be doing? These are all just questions that benchmarking can help answer. And arming the advisor with those answers really just uh, elevates their ability uh, to advise those clients, right? And move from this world of, hey, trust me, I'm the advisor to trust me and let me prove it to you with the data. So, no, that's a, a good answer. And it sounds also like you talked about that focus. It sounds like this is very focused on like the plan sponsor being able to understand something useful out of it. Yeah, and that's actually where the bar score came from. I remember um, I was on uh, I was on a run and I was thinking about, you know, sort of the, the business and this idea of like simplicity uh, kept ringing in my ears. Like we have to make insurance simple. We have to simplify things. Okay, right now you offer a 14-page comprehensive benchmarking report. Advisors love it, but it's, it's a beast, right? Especially for an employer to, to digest. So the idea of the bar score was, well, what could be simpler than one benchmark? So that becomes our starting benchmark, the bar score that's your gateway into maybe wanting more benchmarks and, and more evaluation and, and to engage that advisor and to always kind of figure out how we can position the data in such a way that someone who doesn't understand benefits, doesn't understand insurance lingo, can pick it up and go, oh, we're here and we need to go there. And then ask the next question, you know, what would that cost or how do we do that? And we like a, a tactical example for you is in our benchmarking reports, we almost never show the average coverage because average coverage is a blend of what other employers are offering. And it's rarely like the actual uh, number that the insurer offers, right? So uh, what we try and do is we, we try and show this quartile ranking. And this was actually the inspiration in the logo. Our logo is a bell curve. It's like, well, where do you sit in that curve? Are you somewhere in the, in the middle? Or are you somewhere out on the extremes? And we show the 25th, the 50th and the 75th to really give that 50, the middle 50%, this is what employers are doing. Because if you want to be on the extremes, like what is the bare minimum? You don't need benchmarking. If you want to be on the extremes, I'd like to offer 100% unlimited of everything. Great. Uh, your budget is your constraint, right? We really want to focus on, okay, what is the, that middle range offering? Presenting the data, and again, in a way that it can be actionable. 
So yeah, that's great. Now, can we switch gears here and talk about the marketplace a little bit? Absolutely. So the first off, I'm I'm curious here. Um, what do you see as uh, surprising uptakes in the marketplace? What gets bought there that you never thought would uh, would show up? Yeah. So, I mean, like unsurprisingly, obviously we see like it's a lot of the add-on items. Um, but surprisingly, the more non-traditional items is where we see a lot of the lot of the traction. And I, I think it's because you know advisors largely know, especially with their preferred vendors, like like what the product shelf is for a particular insurance carrier and like what are and they're using the evaluation to guide them on plan alternates and such, but it's, it's the whole world of everything else that they could or should be talking about that they're constantly surprised that employers are actually interested in. Because I think when you're within industry, it's very easy to kind of dismiss, Oh, you know, you should be talking about this new fringe benefit or this other area here, but employers don't see those lines, right? Like employers just see like, this is our employee benefits package. How much of that comes from uh, a life insurance company? Don't know, don't care. What, I, what, what, what I'm interested in is like, what is the package? What does it cost? And what benefit is it providing to my people, right? And you know, obviously, you know, how competitive it is. So it's those non-traditional items that we see popping up. And that was actually like, so to give you some examples, you know, we see, you know, niche areas of uh, wellness uh, being considered in terms of uh, addiction or substance abuse or youth therapy or pet insurance or veterinarian services or cybersecurity and cross-sell into different commercial uh, insurance items. And, you know, obviously the whole world of virtual uh, telemedicine opportunities for not just mental health, but physiotherapy and ergonomic assessments and nutrition and holistic wellness. And it's like, this was also kind of like the driving force of the marketplace itself. It's like every week there was a new vendor and, and it was how on earth as an advisor, are you supposed to keep track of, you know, all of these new offerings? You, you, you know, you can't, it's very difficult to educate yourself on all of them, but even just the access point of, I got to know someone to e email someone to get a brochure. So what we wanted to do was provide a home, not just for all of these vendors to promote, you know, what they're offering, but, a home for advisors and employers to be able to go in and easily find and now have the evaluation actually match uh, them to uh, eligible solutions. I have to ask about pet insurance here. I, I knew this was going to come up, Matt, in the marketplace. Um, I'm going to say I have this bias. Pet insurance is like, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you look at the loss ratios on pet insurance. It's a terrible deal, but I'm not, I don't want to sound critical of it, although I think I just did. Um, but <laughs> I, I get that it's a product, like people have a strong emotional attachment to this product. I think this is kind of what happens um, here. And I, I can really see an employer picking up something like that and going to their employees. And this like trumps whatever you're doing for disability insurance or for like AD&D or what, you know what I mean? Like, do you uh, see some of that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I would agree with you that it, it trumps it from like an employee appreciation perspective. That's what I mean. um, But like, I know with a lot of advisors on, on the call, like, I think it's, it's important, like Paramount to call out, like, you, you have to have the house in order to start talking about pet insurance. Like, there's fundamental things in terms of like, the disability benefits, and maybe the retire, the retirement plan, and, and, and things of that nature that it's like, that's table stakes. So we've got that in place. Now, what else are we going to do? And pet insurance is a great example of where competition is driving the urgency, um, I believe. Um, you know, you hear about such and such employer adding it in and the appreciation from the employees and then employees at another company going, hey, that's cool. Like, why don't we have that? Have we ever considered that? And employers don't want to be caught flat footed. No, no, we've never heard of that or we haven't priced it out. Or it's like they want to be showing that they're consciously making decisions. And, you know, some of the statistics we've seen in, in, in uh, of late is I think it's over 50 percent of Canadian households have at least one pet. And so it's like, it's not, it's not like this niche thing anymore. Like it's, and most people would consider their pet a member of the family. So if you look at like, what are the like foundational principles of a benefits plan? Well, it's designed to, you know, provide access and protection and uh, safety and security and all these things to the employee and their family. Okay. Well, the family member includes a pet. 
And if the pet gets sick, uh, you know, I've, I've got emotional distress, I've got time away from work, I've got, um, you know, high uh, vet bills potentially to cover. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, we've just made a case for pet insurance. Didn't think we'd be talking about that when I started in the industry, but uh, it came up just last week, uh, tech company joining the platform. Uh, very first thing out of their mouth was, oh, pet insurance. Yeah, a few of our people asked about that. Okay. Lest anybody think I dislike people's animals, we had when I was at BCC, like prior to us being acquired, um, we had almost everybody working there had a dog. I don't, but we had the dogs in the office. Like every day, a different person would bring their dog to work. And once yeah. we figured out what dogs got along with each other, then we even had more than one dog in the office sometimes. So, well, I've got one in my feet right now. Um, yeah. And uh, if you look back uh, I, a little ways, I guess, in our social media, he's our chief happiness officer. And a few of our uh, a few of our pets, uh, team members' pets, have been featured, and you know it's a lot of fun. But you know it's it's a real emotional attachment for people, um, and it's a real potential source for financial hardship and uh, and and distraction from the workplace, right? So if that pet is sick, so all of a sudden that becomes uh, something that's important. And you know from the advisor's perspective, like you know when you're talking about looking after 150 clients, let's say. Uh, you don't necessarily have time to promote and sell pet insurance to all of them. And that's where I think the technology comes into play. Like we need to leverage technology to efficiently distribute these ideas to our clients and, and allow clients to, you know, uh, discover these things on their own, get information from you. You can't rely on your face-to-face in-person meetings to talk about a laundry list of things that are available in the marketplace. Right. And so that's where we see the, the connection between, these niche solutions and uh, and the technology. Thanks for bringing me back to the marketplace there, Matt. That's good. I like your, um, so, um, okay. So then um, what about uh, on the marketplace front again here? So I, I like this framing where you say like, you know, I, I should be dealing with the fundamentals, getting everything right. I don't have time for you know, every kind of, how do you, how do you build the, the marketplace? You have hundreds of offerings in there. Is it, they come to you? You go to them. Is the advisors ask you about it? What's the what's the source of all the offerings you have on there? Yeah, I mean that's that's been an evolution in itself. Um, I mean, again, like you don't start benchmarking with with one group, or like I guess you have to start with one group, but you you don't achieve benchmarking with one group, um, and you don't achieve a marketplace with one product or service, right? So uh, to answer your question directly, like now um, it's almost exclusively advisor recommendations. So, you know, we have advisors say, hey, I came across this solution. I really like it. I'd like it added to the marketplace. The advantage to the advisor is all the sales collateral, the brochures, the videos, the descriptions, all of it's in one place for them. So easy access. But then we work with those provider partners to get their rate tables in behind the scenes, automate the quoting, automate the proposal. So it's like, I like this. I want to promote this to my clients. We, through our smart quote offering, we can literally one click and personalize a proposal to 100% of their block of business. So if you imagine like somebody, uh, you know, in the past, like manually, like typing out proposals for 150 clients, like that's a burden. And the reality is it didn't get done because of it. It was a burden and maybe it wasn't that profitable. So it just didn't happen. So then the, that vendor misses out, that those employees miss out. And now we represent a way for um, sort of mass personalized distribution of, of some of these solutions. Um, but going back to the beginning, um, when we didn't have some of that functionality and we certainly didn't have the volume of solutions that we do today, um, you know, it was just, I've heard it said about other businesses, you have to do the things that don't scale to scale. And so, you know, yours truly put together a list of hundreds of, you know, products and services and built out solution pages with available scraping of web content and everything we could. And and we just put it in front of, uh, we just put it in front of the vendors and, uh, then, oh, uh, actually that brochure is outdated. We need to update that. Or actually, oh, you've got our old logo. This is our new one. And you know, you only have one of our solutions. We actually have five of our solutions. And so as we started to connect with the teams and they saw that we had one side of the market in terms of, we have over a thousand advisors, you know, utilizing and have access to the service. They go, oh, so this is really efficient for us because we don't need to update every single person in, in our distribution channel. We can update cloud advisors and then that collateral goes to everyone uh, instantly. So, Again, it kind of snowballed from there. 
what does your back and forth look like? You talked a little bit about like information sharing or a simple repository here. What does your back and forth look like with insurers and other product providers there? Is this uh, like, is it, is it all essentially automated? Are you having manual updates? Is a lot of email back and forth? What's the. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's an area of evolution that I, I thought would have gone faster than it has, um, but we're still optimistic about the future. Um, you know, it's a pretty honest answer. I think, uh, when we started kind of naively thinking that we would be able to plug into all these various uh, insurers and, and solutions. And the reality is that everyone's been on their own path of, of di- digitalization um, of, of their own systems and processes. So we have built some APIs. Uh, we have built uh, connections and loaders from different carriers and uh, different source material where we can. Um, but we've also relied on uh, different technologies, team and process to just get data in the system. Our philosophy has been to do whatever we can to reduce the technical burden of our customer. So if you're an advisor that goes like, I don't have a CRM, I don't know where all my data is. Well, do you have the PDF booklet for this one client? Great, drag and drop, start there. And we would literally take data in whatever format it was available. And then behind the scenes, we've sourced solutions now for nearly all of those situations. So you could send us a, a photocopy of a PDF on an angle and uh, and we'll be able to get started with it. We don't prefer that. <laughs> let's, let's not let that be the message. You know, we obviously love carriers that can package things in, in standard formats or advisors that can package things in standard formats and send that across. But you know, like we're willing to work with whatever to to deliver the service and bridge that gap as I think the group insurance industry or maybe the insurance industry as a whole, um, you know, evolves to that next stage. Can we switch gears and talk a little bit about technology challenges? You haven't just talked about some of them. What do you have to adhere to in terms of a privacy standard or other like SOC 2 or compliance standards like this? Is there yeah, so uh, we don't deal in uh, like confidential medical information. We don't deal in personally identifiable information, and that that makes it a lot easier for us. We've been really strict to, you know, make sure that we, we can't even intake, you know, a cer- certain personally identifiable information. Like if we uptake an uh, employee de- uh, uh, member uh, data sheet, like a census uh, showing what members are in a program in order to quote or do a, some sort of analysis. Um, we don't even we can't even intake names or dates of birth or other things that would be like even more identifiable. So we take steps to reduce, first of all, the amount of sensitive data that we could have and otherwise don't need. Um, and then, of course, we like any software company, we follow all the strictest standards and try and you know uh, exceed those standards where we can in terms of you know maintaining data sovereignty, housing the data in Canada, um, using le- leading cloud service providers, encrypting the data. Um, and um, but a big area of work for us in this area, which I never thought of at the beginning, is is helping our advisor partners gain that um, uh, express uh, per- permission from their clients. You know, in terms of like really helping our advisor partners clarify like what is the service that they're going to be delivering to their uh, to their employers, and making sure that the employers understand that that's a give and take as well, right? Like you're going to give this data to your advisor, not just because they have an agent of record on your business, but because they're gonna use it for the service of this evaluation, right? And what does that mean? So what we're seeing too is um, in combination with us, you know, maturing our service, we're seeing advisors maturing their uh, client uh, agreements or their permissions that they need to procure. And, you know, I love all that work because it's, it's emphasizing the advisor value proposition. Which is, which is the world I come from. And I think the, the, the right way of doing things, if I can call it that, is you, know, you should be selling and advising based on this differentiated value proposition and showing that you're more professional, you've got standards in terms of how you handle confidential client information, and you've partnered with third parties that respect the information the same way, um, all go hand in hand in terms of those advisors being more successful. Now, I assume that some of your uh, marketplace providers are not in Canada. Is there, do you run into international barriers this way? Is this, or is, does it not? Yeah, yeah. That's one of the very first filters. You know, we look at like obviously, like, do you offer a group solution or an individual solution? Do you offer it to Canadian employers? Um, and so, there's a number of vendors uh, that are U.S.-based vendors that do now have Canadian solutions, and we house a number of those uh, in the marketplace. Um, but that's part of the value problem. Like, you know, if you go to Google and you're typing in group solutions, 
like who knows if you're finding stuff that you know is only available in the UK or it's only available in the US or it's only available in these states. When you search Cloud Advisors Marketplace, you can be assured that everything you're seeing is available in in Canada. And anything that you found that uh, I, I know you have a like a benefits background, you're not a technologist yeah. originally. Um, is right. there anything you found as a challenge that you think is unique to the Canadian insurance sector that maybe other tech entrepreneurs entrepreneurs might not run into? Uh, in terms of other tech entrepreneurs, um, yeah, I mean, we're a smaller market. I think that's one thing that I, I've realized, you know, I've always thought of Canada as a big country and it is big geographically, um, but uh, not necessarily by population. Um, and so, you know, when you compare to, you know, what, uh, others are doing in the United States, for example, you're going to find that we are, uh, you know, a smaller market, a more, you know, perhaps a more conservative market. We might move a little slower in some areas. So, you know, you need to be uh, mindful of that. Um, we have a huge uh, geographical distribution, though. And I think that's actually one of the advantages for technology in, in Canada, um, because you have certain things like, um, you know, longer uh uh, driving times between clients in rural areas um, and, you know, the opportunity for utilizing cloud computing, utilizing digital virtual meeting solutions can help you become more profitable working with those smaller employers. And I think it actually necessitates like getting these services out and, and uh, to smaller employers. So the, the geography is actually a, a benefit there. Um, specifically in the industry, I already talked about like down to three employees, you know, you can have a, fully personalized plan design, it seems. Uh, and that's not a standard everywhere else. Um, so um, that variation obviously supports benchmarking with everyone having a slightly different plan design. You want to know how your uh, your plan stacks up. Yeah. What about Quebec and or French? Yes, so we did go through the process uh, of uh, making sure that all of our reporting uh, was available in both French and English. Um, you know, and, and increasingly uh, making sure that when we do launch things that we, we launch them in both official languages uh, and we don't sort of treat the French uh, speaking audience like, um, you know, second, uh, a second consideration, but provisioning for that in every project and everything that we're, we're doing. Um, and, uh, you know, that's been an interesting uh, lesson as well. Uh, Quebec obviously has a number of their own, their own rules and conditions and, and things of that nature, but, you um, uh, we've also utilized uh, uh, different aspects of translation to really try and nuance the language appropriately for that audience. It's uh, not, uh, there, there's some dispute actually in between uh, uh, French language speaking uh, advisors and, and insurance carriers on, you know, different terminology and, you know, maybe not too dissimilar to uh, to the rest of the insurance industry where there's dispute on what is a synonym of, of this or that or what is the different acronym to be used there. Um, so again, just trying to really enhance the, the language uh, that we offer there um, so that it's immediately interpretable um, by, you know, by that, that end employer. So now do you have, I don't know if there's any uh, validity to this question, but I'm going to ask it like, is, is there any kind of issue where you're presenting something that an employer can come and I don't know, at least shop for, right? I, I understand you you do filter everything through insurance or intermediaries ultimately. That's that's accurate, right? Yeah. Um, but is there do you have any tension around like plan uh sorry between advisors who say, well, you know, it's awkward, Matt, when employers come straight to your website and look at something, or is there anything there in terms of attention? Yeah, absolutely. Um you, I don't think you'd be asking the question if if there wasn't. Um, there absolutely is a, a tension. I think there's a tension whenever you're doing something new um, and you're sort of challenging the status quo. Um, you know, we are uh, helping to evolve the future of advising and we are helping to um, evolve from the, you know, traditional brokerage model where uh, everything did flow directly through uh, the advisor. Now, we have an advisor partner uh, who's engaged in every single one of the, um, the employers that come through our site. So that's actually a lead generation service um, where employers can come uh, to the website, they can learn about it, they can get the evaluation. Uh, but during that process, uh, one of the first things that happens is they get matched with an, uh, one of our advisor partners. And, you know, that's uh, important for a number of reasons, uh, but simply simply put, you know, ultimately it's going to involve insurance advice and, and insurance quotes, and you need to have a licensed partner uh, involved there. 
But I think uh, what you're asking about is is less on the sort of compliance side and more on, you know, the the, the competition for attention. And with cloud advisors, you know, uh, promoting our message directly to employers, uh, attending conferences, and um, you know, uh, getting our message directly to uh, HR and finance and leadership, um, that is putting us in competition for the attention of those employers. Our advisor partners who have our service, they love it and they encourage us to do more of it because, again, it's helping them ultimately win new business. Um, and, you know, advisors who maybe aren't on our platform, I'd encourage you to come and, and check out uh, what it is we're doing because what we're doing is really trying to uh, change the expectations of the employer, uh, giving them opportunities where, yes, they can access the marketplace, they can access benchmarking and insights, but they're going to do that through you just not in a face-to-face meeting necessarily. That first touch point might be online and you can have your own you know, online branded marketplace that you use to get in front of your clients. But that's a paradigm shift, right? Especially for some who have been in the industry for a long time. Um, but you know, every time we move from one uh, stage to the next, you know, we're entering this age of convenience now where the employer expectations have changed and we're gonna continue to, you know, uh, again, deliver to uh, to that medium and make sure that the employers who want access, they don't want a first meeting, they want to be able to look at a few things themselves and then set up a meeting, that they have the ability to do that. So yeah, um, that creates some tension, um, but ultimately I think uh, you know, out of that tension comes uh, some really great outcomes uh, for the employer and, and ultimately the employees who can access that. Right. So I'm gonna uh, wrap up with one final question here, Matt, and this is, you, you have some thoughts, I think, about the future of the benefits sector in Canada. Um, can you elaborate for me here? I'm, I'm very curious about this. Yeah, so, you know, I, I guess we started this interview kind of talking about um, the origin of cloud advisors. And, and you know, that was that was 10 years ago when I started in the industry and it was seven years ago when we started the company. Um, so what does it look like to be an advisor in 10 years is largely being answered right now. Um, you know, there is a digital marketplace and there is instant quoting and there is, instant access to insights and benchmarking and analysis and all of that being uh, served up. So what does it look like to be an advisor over the next 10 years? Um, and what is the future of advising? And, and that's something I think about all the time because I feel like it, you know, our duty and because we just touched on, yes, it sometimes creates tension, but our duty is to look into the future and look at what the expectations are from the employer and the employees and how do we deliver that sooner rather than later. So what I think about in terms of the future of advising is we have this um, automation of presentation today. We have automated reports, we have automated dashboards, and, and an advisor can be client ready instantly. Um, what we're moving towards is going to be um, both optimization and automation of execution. And this is gonna pose some really interesting problems technically where the industry does need to come together on, uh, on, on some integrations, but optimization in terms of, when I present you the bar score, it begs a question about uh, how do I improve my plan, which begs a question about an additional benchmark. And the more data I show you, the more you want and the more sophisticated questions that employers are going to be asking uh, of the advisors and ultimately of us as the, as the service provider. So how do we produce more answers? How do we prioritize those answers um, and utilize more data sets to be able to answer really complex or nuanced questions or personalized questions for a particular, um, uh, particular employer? They want to know not just how their plan stacks up and how they can improve it, but what it would cost. And what's the cost-benefit analysis of doing this strategy versus this strategy? Can we model that? These are things that like, yeah, we can technically achieve these things, but to do them at scale, to do them in an approachable and actionable way is gonna take some additional work. So optimization and, and helping to optimize what is the best plan at the best price? How do we use data to answer that question? Getting more into the, not just the value of the plan, but also the pricing of the plan uh, and then automation of execution. Once I've made a decision, <laughs> that's it. I don't want to be involved in insurance anymore. And we hear this from employers a lot, right? It's like, there's two times that insurance is important in your life. The time you purchase it and the time you have to claim. And outside of that, it's like, can you just reduce all that to the background? And I think that's what, what the, the next stage is going to be, is that age of execution, allowing the machine-to-machine communication to, to execute on that. And, um, you know, it's a really exciting time because a lot of the foundation is coming uh, 
you know, coming into maturity right now and, and creating a lot more opportunities for not just us, but some of our partners and, uh, and some of our uh, insurance provider partners as well that are pushing the envelope internally on what their systems can do. And as I said before, and, and maybe this is a good place uh, for me to kind of wrap up my answer on this is this whole industry exists to serve the employer and ultimately the employees and their people. And so I think that the, you know, the vendors that are going to win or the, you know, the ultimate uh, windfall here is, is anyone who's focused on achieving the value proposition for employees, right? And how we utilize the technology to create better advice, to create urgency, to make decisions that the employer actually changes their plan, actually improves their plan, adds services, but then translates those services, communicates them to the actual employees and, and their family members that see value in it. And that's what's tied in with our mission to improve the access uh, to healthcare for all Canadians. And we think that the technology at scale um, is a way that we can do that. So that's what I see as the future of advising. Yeah. Um, Alex, anything you want to wrap us up with there? No, I think, you know, Matt really touched on it on, on everything. Um, he's quite the expert in the industry and, you know, we really look to him and in, in all these cases and um, yeah, I think he's just shared uh, exactly what, you know, our vision is for the next kind of 10 years and, and looking down the line. Perfect. And we'll have uh, realistic estimates about how long exactly it takes to implement new technologies every time Matt. that's the deal. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually something as a tech company, you know, we, we struggle with from, from day one. So you don't want to be one of those companies that is uh, over-promising and under-delivering, right? And so, um, the, the, you know, we continue to push the envelope, but, you know, make sure we hold some stuff in our back pocket um, until it's ready um, to make sure that we're going to be able to execute on that and launch that. But um, our pace has been accelerating, um, and uh, I don't think it's going to be 10 years um, and not even close before we realize what, what I'm talking about there. Um, so we'll have to maybe do a round two uh, of this interview and uh, I'll update my answer. Certainly look forward to seeing what comes next. So thanks to both of you for joining us today. I really appreciate the the look at the, as you said before, the nut and bolts, Matt. That's, uh, that's fantastic. Um, and enjoy uh, both of your days. Thanks so kindly. Wonderful. Thanks for having us, Jason. Great to uh, talk with you. That's uh, that wraps this up. Um, API, um, Matt used a few acronyms in here. API is an application programming interface. This is basically a way that two dissimilar softwares communicate with each other. So APIs are valuable for offerings like Matt's because it lets you bring your program into other um, environments. Uh, the number for today is four. The number for today is four. And I hope you'll join me again in two weeks. I have actually a financial advisor coming back on. Um, this is uh, going to be uh, Chris Gorey. Um, Chris is a benefits advisor. This will be a CGIB Navigator podcast as well. And uh, Chris is going to talk about his experience going through an audit with FISRA. This is a really good interview. Um, I think there's something here for everybody, whether you're group or individual or even no life insurance license at all, but financial planning. Um, just really tons of good information from Chris here. All right. Thanks very much and enjoy your continued studies. If you're listening to this episode and you're not already signed up for CE credits, this is a very easy thing to do. Just navigate over to businesscareercollege.com and you're going to sign up here for CE. Just subscribe. Currently, the pricing is $200 a year. We may be uh, introducing monthly pricing at some point, but as of today, we have a cost of $200 a year. And once you're signed up, then you can just go and listen to every episode within your subscriptions. Once you're logged in, you'll use my subscriptions here and you'll just go to the latest episode, which you'll scroll down to very near the bottom for. It doesn't matter which episode, you just scroll down and you find the one. So as of the time I'm recording this, the most recent episode is season four, episode 27. I can just start it right from here. I can do the quiz here. Once I'm done the quiz, then I can get my continuing education certificate very straightforward. Um, so I would just launch the course here and I can watch the episode from here. Uh, now, if you happen to be already listening to it on YouTube or whatever the case is, you can just navigate right into the quiz, you start your quiz, and you're just going to go through the whole thing. 
And then at the end of it, you'll be able to see your certifications. So we're going to bring up uh, designing small group products. We bring this up and we click on wall certificate. And that's going to give me the CE certificate I need in order to maintain status wherever I happen to uh, need CE credits. So I really do encourage, I know that uh, out of our regular listeners, about 40% of you are listening to the episode for CE credits. That's about 60% who are listening out of general interest or whatever it is. Um, And I really think this is an easy way to get your CE credits, 200 bucks a year, pretty reasonable price. And as you can see from the certificate here, so, and as you hear me discuss at the beginning of the episode, we have a broad range of approvals for all of our courses. I'd like to thank uh, Joe Tong. Joseph is our editor, both for video and audio content. And Joe does a lot of good work to make sure that these episodes look and sound good, despite my better efforts. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Maria Nguyen. Maria makes sure that the episodes all get approved for CE credits. Uh, Veronica Tiber does the quality assurance through that process. And then we have a strong marketing team that makes sure that all of our content gets out there so that people can find us and uh, take advantage of learning opportunity they might not have known about. 